Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 33 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Who were the sons of God, and why did Satan come with them to God's throne in the book of Job? We're also going to talk about Jacob's sons and how they avenged the rape of their sister. And I got to tell you, today's podcast is sort of rated PG-13, and that's a first for us. Uh, Of course, I am being a little bit tongue-in-cheek by using such a rating, but what I am trying to communicate is that the subject matter today isn't necessarily for children. I don't mean at all my discussion or what I'm going to say or the commentary on the passages, but primarily the passage we're reading in Genesis. So we are in Genesis 34, and it is a very upsetting passage in which Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, is raped. Though it doesn't make it better... The revenge on those who raped her is almost as satisfying as any revenge-themed movie you have ever seen. We all continue on in Mark, which sees the fascinating incident with Jesus and the legion of demons that he drives into a herd of pigs, which I think is an event in the life of Jesus that we will no doubt cover later on in this podcast run. Romans 5 will continue our beautiful view of the good news of Jesus, proclaiming the powerful truth of the death uh, of death in the first Adam and life everlasting available in the second Adam, which is Jesus, the Son of God. Also today, we begin a new book, J-O-B. Now that's pronounced Job, not Job, although it looks like Job. And it's one of the literary masterpieces of the Bible, and a book which will flex many of our theological convictions. It's got a lot of stuff in there that's going to push us around, and that's a good thing. The primary theme of Job is suffering, sovereignty, and the character of God. And a fascinating thing happens in Job chapter 1 and 2. We are given something of a peek or a glimpse into the throne room of God, where we will get a glimpse at what is probably God's divine counsel, as well as like a conversation between God and the Satan. And that's going to be our focus passage today, as we consider who these sons of God were mentioned in Job 1 and Job 2, and why the devil came with them twice to a meeting in God's throne room. So let's read it and prepare to be a little bit surprised if you've never read Job before. Job chapter 1 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. There was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep and goats, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His son used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, 
Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge of protection around him, his household, and everything he owns? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, While the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Now, in future episodes, as we go through the book of Job, it has many chapters. Uh, We will talk about suffering and tragedy, but our focus today is in a bit of a different place. Job doesn't give us a lot of subtext or explanation here, just all of a sudden we're taken to a scene in the throne room of God, and these beings called sons of God are presenting themselves before the King of Kings, God Most High, and Satan is strolling right in there with him. I have so many questions about this passage. Who in the world were the sons of God? Isn't Jesus the only son of God? Was the Satan somehow a son of God too? Now, to at least try to answer some of these questions, let's go to the text of the Bible first. And when we do, we're going to find that that phrase, sons of God, the exact phrase at least, appears about five times in the Hebrew Bible. You see it in Genesis 6-1, a passage we've already talked about. In episode 6, our Nephilim episode, where it says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And then in Genesis 6-4, we see the Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterwards, 
when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind. And of course, we have this passage, Job 1.6. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the very next chapter, the same thing happens. Job 2, verse 1. One day, the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And then we get to Job 38, verse 7. God is speaking, and he says, Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Across it? What supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, this is every exact occurrence of that Hebrew phrase, Bini Elohim, which means sons of God in the Old Testament. From kind of a limited sampling, we can conclude with a pretty high degree of grammatical certainty that in at least some instances, the sons of God in the Hebrew Old Testament were not human. How could they be human since God himself says in Job 38 that they were present at the creation of the world and were shouting for joy then? Some scholars are pretty confident in their view that the sons of God in Genesis 6, as we discussed earlier, are the human offspring of Seth, but that doesn't fit the context of the sons of God in Job, and I don't really think it actually fits the context of the Genesis passage either. As we did mention on that Nephilim episode, I further believe that the grammatical and contextual uses of the Hebrew phrase here indicate that the sons of God in Genesis 6 and Job were not human, but were some sort of heavenly being. Now, most assume that they were angels, but that really doesn't appear to be the case either, as angels tend to serve as messengers. Well, that's what their Hebrew name means, Malak, it means messenger. And these beings do not appear to be messengers at all. So, what are they? Well, sadly, the Bible never tells us exactly what they are, but I believe it's likely at least very possible, let's say that and be safe, that what we are saying in Job 1 and Job 2 is what is described elsewhere in the Bible as God's divine counsel. And we already talked once this week about Psalm 82. I'll read it again. God stands in the divine assembly, divine counsel. He pronounces judgment among the gods. Here's another picture of what white might well be the divine counsel. You see it in 1 Kings 22. The prophet Micaiah who is a true prophet of Yahweh, says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and the whole heavenly host or army was standing by him at his right hand and at his left hand. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one was saying this, and another was saying that. Then a spirit came forward, stood in the Lord's presence, and said, I will entice him. The Lord asked him how. He said, I will go and become a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You will certainly entice him and prevail. Go and do that. Now, that's another fascinating passage that we'll talk about when we get to. But from those scriptures, at least, we see that God holds court from time to time and meets with various heavenly beings and 
maybe even considers their counsel. Now, why would an omnipotent, omniscient being do this? Somebody that's all-knowing as God is, why would he do this? And I, I think the answer lies in relationship rather than the need of counsel. God did not need humans. He was not lonely, and he did not create human humanity the same ways to say one adopts a puppy for companionship or whatever. God himself as Trinity is in the ultimate relationship, and his actions seem to indicate that he is a God who delights in relationships with others. But why was the Satan in God's throne room? Keeping in mind that Satan isn't a name, it's a role, it means the accuser. That's not Satan's first name, and Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah, Satan means accuser, that is uh, their role. So, why was Satan there? And that's a big, big, big question that I don't think the Bible exactly answers, but I tend to think we get a massive clue in the book of Revelation, and I tend to think that the answer as to why Satan was in the throne room of God is that up until a certain time, Satan had access to heaven. Consider Revelation 12, verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels also fought. But he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. So at some point, apparently during the time of humans being on the earth, Satan was cast out of heaven. A plain sense reading of what we just read in Revelation 12 indicates that even well after the fall of Genesis 3, Satan had access to heaven. How do we know that? Because verse 10 notes that Satan had been accusing the brothers and sisters in front of God day and night before he was cast out of heaven. If this happened pre-creation or even pre-fall in the garden, there were really no brothers and sisters to be accused. Therefore, I believe that Job is giving us a picture of what things were like in heaven pre-the war in heaven of Revelation chapter 12, prior to Satan being cast out of heaven. So I think that's what's going on here. Fascinating passage. We might talk about it a little bit more tomorrow when we get into Job chapter 2. But for now, we're going to go over to Genesis chapter 34. And I guess brace yourself because this is not easy to read or think about. Genesis chapter 34 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible Leah's daughter Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. "'Get me this girl as a wife,' he told his father." 
Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Meanwhile, Shechem's father Hamor came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident and were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. Hamor said to Jacob's sons, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here. Move about and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Grant me this favor, and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask me. Just give the girl to be my wife. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to him. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this one condition. If all of your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, well, then we will take our daughter and go. Their words seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important in all his father's family, so Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men are peaceful towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition if all our men are circumcised as they are. Won't their livestock and their possessions and all their animals become ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live with us. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and all those men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? So, wow, what a heart-wrenching, incredible story there. Incredibly violent. A very interesting strategy, I guess you would say, by the brothers of Dinah, who did indeed protect their sister's honor and perhaps went beyond that, killing every man in the city when maybe uh, one man would have sufficed. Jacob's uh, still cowardly nature 
is kind of seen there. He did not do what probably he should have done and immediately defend his daughter. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Jacob was a follower of God. Why did he not do the right thing? Why hasn't he changed yet? And that is a very, very important question. Because as we get into the prophets of the Old Testament, we're going to find something interesting. We're going to find them pointing to the need for humans to have a new heart. Why? Because we're wicked. Because we have sinful tendencies ever since the fall. And even God worshipers in the Old Testament, the more they followed God, the more they followed his law, I suppose the more they conformed to him, but there was not a new heart involved. It's not until you get to the time of Jesus when a new heart is promised as part of the new covenant. We're going to read about that in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and see that unfold in what Jesus did. So don't be too surprised that Jacob is not transformed yet. Yahweh followers in the Old Testament could have their sins covered, but they could not have their whole hearts and minds transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as is available in the New Covenant era. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and nobody was able to restrain him any more, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him. Because we are many... And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and the demons begged him, Send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd of about two thousand rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The man who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. Jesus did not let him, but told him, Go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. 
When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come, lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for twelve years had endured much under many doctors. She'd spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing, for she said, If I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter. He said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid. Only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people wailing and yelling loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was twelve years old. At this they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved from saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who do not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then... As through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more." So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Charles Spurgeon, commenting and preaching on this passage, said this, How few Christians there seem to be who really understand the covenant of grace. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We fell. Not by our own fault, but by Adam's fault, and we rise, not by our own virtue, but by virtue of our union with Christ. If you are in Christ, believer, you are safe while Christ stands. You cannot drown the body until you drown the head. My foot may be deep in the stream, but until the waves roll over my brow, my foot is not drowned. And until Christ shall perish, no soul that is one with Christ can be destroyed. For he he said to his disciples, Because I live, you shall live also. May the Spirit of God glorify Christ by taking these things of Christ and revealing them to you and making them personally yours. And I say amen to that and Godspeed to you. See you tomorrow.